Joshua chapter 1. If someone asks you to do an impossible task, if they called you to some insurmountable feat that you deemed impossible, how would you get ready for it? If you were called to some task that absolutely scared you to death, how would you prepare to fulfill that task? This morning, those are the kind of questions that are on the minds of the individuals that we're going to read about at the beginning of the book of Joshua. And to understand how it is that they arrived at this place, how it is that they came to, in a real sense, be, be scared to death about what God was asking them to do, we need to, to go back a little bit in our minds in the story that God has been unfolding in His Word. Back in the book of Numbers, we saw a grumbling, sinful people. We also saw a faithful man of patience, Moses, who was leading that people. He was faithful, though he wasn't without sin. And in the midst of the grumbling of the people of Israel, Moses was to provide water for them by speaking to a rock and having it pour forth. Yet in a moment of angry frustration, Moses sinned and disobeyed God. Instead of speaking to the rock, as he was told, he took his staff and he struck the rock. The sin was not just his anger and his disobedience, but in striking the rock, which represented the rock to come, he was in effect striking Christ. Therefore, the punishment for that sin was not to enter the promised land with Israel. And this book of Joshua begins where the book of Deuteronomy ends, recounting the death of God's servant, Moses. And we need to think for a minute what that would have meant for Israel. We need to think about how important Moses was for them. They have not had any other human leader since they came from the Exodus, since they were delivered from Israel. Egypt. Moses has been the man, as it were. He has always been the one, whether they liked him or not, whether they they agree with what he said or not, he has always been the one who has been leading them. Yes, there were other people like his brother Aaron, who was the high priest, but there was no one like Moses. He was the intermediary between Israel and the Lord. He was their leader for over 40 years, and now he's gone. As Israel stands on the edge of the promised land called to go in and take possession of it, that leader is gone. And it was, would certainly have been an uncertain time for Israel. How, what is life going to be like for us as a nation without our leader, Moses? You can imagine how uncertain of a time it would have been for Joshua, his chosen successor. How do I follow in that man's footsteps? How do I lead in such a way that will honor God knowing this is the pattern that has been set? This is the example, the model that I need to follow. And yet God knew the fears and the uncertainty of Joshua and the people, and in His grace, He speaks to Joshua, seeking to give him courage in the midst of the conflict that is to come as they take the land of Canaan. And so we read in Joshua chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I, am going, that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, to the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. 
Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Notice the refrain that God repeats to Joshua. Verse 6, be strong and courageous. Verse 7, be strong and very courageous. Verse 9, be strong and courageous. In the midst of the fighting and the conflict that is about to come as Israel sweeps in to take the land of Canaan as its possession, as a gift of God, God wants Joshua and the people to be filled with courage. That's why, he's, that's why he's speaking to Joshua. Be filled with courage. Don't be afraid, Joshua. But how is it going to happen that he is going to be filled with courage? Well, God seeks to build courage in his people by reminding them of three things. By reminding them of three acts of grace in their life. And if they will remember those things even now as Joshua is commissioned to go, if we will today remember those three things, that we will find ourselves in the midst of any difficult situation, in the midst of any conflict, seeking to fulfill God's call in our lives, we will find ourselves filled with courage. So what are we to remember? Well, we need to remember again three things. First, we need to remember the presence of God. We need to remember the presence of God. Put yourself in Joshua's shoes just for a minute. Forty years ago, you went into the land to spy it out, And what you saw there was glorious. It was a beautiful, fertile land. And you came back saying, let's go. This is amazing what God has given to us. Let's go and take it. But 10 of your fellow spies said, there's no way. We can't do that. These people are huge. Armies, fortified cities, forget it. It's not worth it. They even lie and say, ah, the land's not that good. Let's just forget it. And and that that grumbling, that dissension, that, that sinfully disobedient attitude spreads throughout all of the land of Israel so that people say, we, we don't want to go in. And God says, fine. Fine, then I will let you wander around in the desert for 40 years and die off. And the next generation, 40 years from now, they will be able to go in and take the land. And now you're back. Now you're back just as God said you would be, but you're not the chief assistant to the leader anymore, Moses. Now you are the leader and Moses is dead. You have several hundred thousand men that you are supposed to be leading into battle to take these cities, yet for the last 40 years there's been no combat training. You have the entire generation of men who don't know how to fight. They don't have any experience. Hopefully, they're holding the spear in the right direction. We don't know. But Joseph's looking out saying, saying, well, how am I going to do this? How am I going to fulfill this call on my life? I don't don't think I can. I I look out at what I see and what I'm supposed to do, and I'm scared. I'm scared. You're looking into the promised land before you, longing to take possession of it. But looming large in front of you is the Jordan River at flood stage. How are you going to get 2 million people across that? It's not just an immediate immediate hindrance to what you have to do either, but it represents all that you're feeling right now. How How can I accomplish this task? In His great mercy, the Lord appears to him and He says, 
Arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I'm giving to you, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, for just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. The assurance that God gives Joshua is the promise of his powerful presence. Joshua, you saw all of the mighty things I did through in the life of Moses. And now understand, I am going to be with you in the exact same way. I am going to be with you just as I was with him. And I will never leave you or forsake you. And to kind of reinforce this idea to Joshua and the people that that nothing has changed in terms of God's commitment to them. He basically allows them to re-experience the high points of the Exodus, things that they themselves did not experience the first time 40 years ago. So Joshua sends the spies back into the promised land to see if anything's changed. And the first time they came back and there was largely a negative report, but this time they come back and things are clearly different. They find people in the land of Canaan who have heard of the Lord God of Israel. They've heard what he did to the Egyptians and they are afraid. They are afraid. The spies come back and they say, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, for all the inhabitants of the land are going to melt away because of us. They know we're coming. They've heard, what's, they've heard all the stories and they know that the Lord God is to be feared. So they begin. But again, the Jordan River stands before them. And just as God had parted the Red Sea, so now God also parts the Jordan River for Joshua. And just as Leaving Egypt, all of the people walk over dry land in, into and away from into safety and away from danger. So now, all of God's people walk across dry land into the very beginnings of the promised land. And in the midst of those things, God is saying, "Just as just as I was with Moses, I will be with you, Joshua, and I will never leave you or forsake you." And once in the land, the Lord tells them to do two things: first, circumcise all the men, and secondly, celebrate. The Passover. And I want you to think about that for a minute. Why did God give circumcision and the Passover celebration to God's people? It was to remind them that they were God's people, right? You knew that you were part of the covenant if you were a man because uh, a week after you're born, you were circumcised and you knew then, I am a child of the covenant. I am part of the people of Israel. I am one of God's people. And to remember that it's not just ethnic descent, but that, that, that identity as God's people is rooted in salvation. They say every year, keep the Passover celebration in remembrance of that first Passover. And yet God is having to tell Israel here, after 40 years, circumcise, circumcise all the men and celebrate the Passover. What does that say? That says that for 40 years, that previous faithless generation never identified themselves as the people of God. They never obeyed God and circumcised their children to say, we are the people of the Lord. We are the covenant people of God. They never did that. And they never kept the Passover. They never went back to look and to remember the salvation that God had worked to bring them out. What faithlessness. I mean, there's not really an equivalent, but to try and get it in your minds, think about right now, if every Christian parent in the world decided to never tell their children about the gospel, and then you would approach what the severity, the magnitude of what, is, what we are seeing here 
is all about. Now God is saying, though, put all that faithlessness behind you. That was that other generation that is now dead in the wilderness. Do better than your fathers did before me. Remember that I will be with you and I will never leave you or forsake you. And then in the next chapter, we see Joshua on the very, the very verge of the very first battle, as it were. He's looking down at the city of Jericho, this massively, massive fortified city. And you can see him, just to picture him kind of you know, looking down at it saying, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And he's, he's probably working out some kind of battle strategy about where to go and, 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 how, to, and how to strike. And, and suddenly he hears footsteps. He turns around in the night and he sees this man, it says, with a sword drawn. And I don't know what you think about a situation like that, but here's what Joshua says. Are you for us or for our adversaries? It's the ancient equivalent of, are you, are you one of my men or are you come here to, to kill me? You know? And uh, the man, though, is no mere man. He says, neither. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua suddenly realizes who is before him. It's not just a man. It's not just an angel. It is the Lord himself. You say, well, how, how do you get that? Because Joshua, it says, immediately fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. And if it would have been an angel, he would have been rebuked. Like, no, no, don't, don't do that. We're both servants. He didn't do that. He allows Joshua to worship him. And I think along with many others, what we have here is an appearance of no one less than the pre-incarnate Christ standing before Joshua. What's more, in words that echo from the mountainside of Horeb, Joshua is told, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Now, think about that for a minute. Hopefully those words sound familiar to you. Because those are the very words that, that God said to Moses 40 years ago when he called him to be the redeemer of Israel. Now, now think about this. Surely in 40 years... Joshua is the chief assistant to Moses. Surely in those 40 years, Moses has told Joshua about his call to ministry. I mean, who wouldn't want to, right? It's in the Bible, for goodness sake. We know about it. Surely Joshua knew about it. So, so you can imagine Moses saying, you know, Joshua, I'll never forget that day. I'm out just shepherding, out in Midian. I've got the flocks, um, you know, talking to the wife. And so I look up and there's something on fire up in the mountain. And I can't figure out what it is. So I go at the end of the day and I see it's this bush. And it looks like it's not burning. But I get a little closer and it's not actually fire. It's actually the glory of the Lord. And he speaks out of this glory to me. And he says, I am present with you. Take off your sandals for this is holy ground. You can imagine Joshua saying, man, I bet that was awesome. Man, what was that like to be in the Lord's presence? And here's Joshua, fearful, fearful, not knowing what to expect, not knowing how he's going to get through this. And the Lord again comes before his servant as in his presence and says the very thing that he said to Moses, take off your sandals for this is holy ground. What is he saying? He's saying, just as I was with Moses, Joshua, I am going to be with you. And I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. And what we see over and over again in these first 12 chapters is that very thing. We see the Lord blessing Joshua's own battle strategies at Ai. We see his unorthodox instructions for taking down the city of Jericho by simply singing for, for seven days and yelling. We see over and over again the Lord is with Joshua to ensure his victory, to ensure his success as the leader of Israel. I'm not sure whether you've seen it or not, but the film version of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, number one, is very long, but it's also very good. 
And one of the things that you will notice if you're paying attention and watching all three films is that there are several musical motifs. By that I mean that there are, there are certain, group, certain important people, certain important groups, certain important places, and they have kind of their own little theme song. And depending on where it's at in the movie and how important the scene is, when those things flash up on the screen, that, that theme song is woven into the larger score to give you a heads up, oh yeah, this is that guy again. Or, 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 or this is evil, this is good, something along those lines. And I think probably the best of those themes, uh, the very distinctive one, is the one that's played whenever you see the people from the Fellowship of the Ring itself on the screen. These were The Fellowship was the group that, that pledged to take the, the Ring of Power and to, to take it somewhere to destroy it, knowing that they would defeat ultimate evil in the process. And that theme shows up over and over again to the, the, the three films at very important moments in the film. Sometimes it's played very slow and majestic. Other times it's played with blasting triumph as the fellowship is battling the forces of evil. And over and over again, whenever it's played, it's always there in the score to highlight hope. When you hear that theme, you know it's time to take hope in Middle Earth because evil is being defeated. Good is on the rise. It's on the move. It's about to triumph over evil. And these words of promise to Joshua from the Lord, I will not leave you or forsake you, I think are very much that same kind of, that, that kind of overture of hope that God weaves throughout the storyline of the Bible. It comes up over and over again in slightly different words, but sometimes in the exact same words. And anytime God's people find themselves in the midst of trouble, God comes in and says, remember, I am with you. And if I am with you, I will never leave you or forsake you. These words buttress God's people against sin and despair. And it's clear to that even today, as individual Christians, that theme hangs over our lives. In Hebrews 13, the author is calling Christians to a life free from worry and fear. And if you've been with us on Wednesday nights, you know as we're looking through Hebrews, the life of the Hebrews that, that he's talking about there is nothing like our life. They are being so hammered and so persecuted by their fellow Jews that they are actually thinking about fleeing Christianity because it's just too difficult to be a Christian. And the author of Hebrews is writing to them to encourage them. And he reminds them in chapter 13 and says, Has not the Lord said, I will never leave you or forsake you? So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? When we face difficulty, when we face struggle, when we face uncertainty, what is the thing, what, what grace are we called upon to remember from God? God's own presence with us. It was not just true for Joshua and the Israelites. It was not just true for the Hebrew Christians. It is true for us today. We can live with courage in fulfilling God's call on our lives, even at the worst of circumstances, if we will simply remember that in Christ we have heard the Lord say, I will never leave you. Or forsake you. The second thing that we need to remember along with Joshua is we need to remember the faithfulness of God. We need to remember the faithfulness of God. In verse 6, God tells Joshua, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. The Lord is reminding Joshua of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promise that he reminded Moses about long ago to give this land of Canaan to the descendants of his chosen servant, Abraham. But think about just for a minute what that would have been like for Joshua, if not all of Israel. 
Moses first tried to take the people in the land 40 years ago. And it was because of their sin that God said, forget it. You're not going in. I'm going to kill you in the desert and I'm going to try again with your kids and your grandkids. And, And that promise happened 40 years ago. Now, we say, oh, that doesn't seem like that long. Well, sometimes because we think of the Bible as this far-off place and things happen a lot longer, people live longer, all that kind of stuff, it, it may not seem like 40, but think about 40 years in our day. What would that be? 1969. Well, what's going on in 1969? Well, I wasn't there, so I had to look it up, all right? So here's some of the things going on in 1969. The Beatles performed their last concert on the roof of their recording studio. Three Apollo missions were launched that year, including the first moon landing. The first lottery draft is instituted for the Vietnam War. Over 350,000 people show up for Woodstock. Gas was 35 cents per gallon. Friends, that seems like a totally different world to me. Okay, And for some of you that were there and lived it, you may think back and say, I can't believe that all that stuff was actually going on back then, 40 years ago. Again, you got someone like me not even alive to remember all that. I've only heard about it secondhand. I only know it because three sites verify all the information on the Internet. That's it. I could call up my dad and say, hey, you lived it. You tell me, is this, is this stuff true? You think about those people now sitting on the edge of the promised land. Most of them, they didn't hear the promise. They were not part of the exodus. They're only hearing secondhand that God says, go and take the land that I'm going to be with you in 40 years. And you think about the kind of, the kind of downer that the book even begins with. The first words out of God's mouth in the, in the second sentence, Moses, my servant, is dead. That's not exactly a, a real uplifting way to start, is it? We like Paul's letters, don't we? Paul, an apostle, writing to you grace, love, and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, that's the way to open a book, not Moses is dead. Whoa. But what is the very next words out of his mouth? Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving you to the people of Israel. You can picture Joshua here saying, well, wait a minute. I mean, Moses was kind of a big deal, God. I mean, I was there. I was with him. I saw what you did. And you're saying just he's dead and we just move on? And the Lord says, yes, that's exactly it. Moses is dead. Move on. He's in the past. You are the future. It's time for me to be faithful to my word and to fulfill my promises. Saying Moses is dead is not just a mere historical marker in the book. Understand that. The author is making a profound theological statement. God is not dependent on any one man. God is not dependent. If you don't write anything else down, write that down and, and think about that for the next week. God is not dependent on any man. It doesn't mean humanity is not important. It certainly are important because God sent Christ to redeem them. That says that there's, there's some value there. Is it important that we obey God? Absolutely. But nevertheless, at the end of the day, God is not dependent on any man. If God has made a promise, then the entirety of humanity could rebel against him and he would still fulfill his promise. He would still be faithful to his word. And this is an amazing statement about God's sovereignty and keeping his promises. And it's that sovereign faithfulness that is supposed to inflame Joshua's courage. That I am the Lord God. Moses may have been a tower, But he is dead, Joshua. Don't worry about him. Go and take the land as I have promised you will be able to do. That's exactly what we see. In chapters 12 
or rather from chapters 13 through 21, we see not only the land being conquered, but now God dividing it up and handing it out to tribe after tribe after tribe, just as he has promised Israel. Every tribe gets their portion. Even the Levites who don't get any portion of land because of their priestly service to the Lord are still given cities from which to base their ministry of teaching to the people. And the other tribes are told how to provide for their needs. God is faithful to keep his promises. Nevertheless, the keeping of those promises raises a question mark in our minds. If you have read the book of Joshua, you know that this is a book that presents one of the most difficult issues in understanding and believing the Bible. The question goes something like this. How can a just and loving God order the complete destruction of the people already living in the land of Canaan just to fulfill his promises to Abraham? Have you ever thought about that? God orders the, the, the extermination of all the peoples in the land of Canaan to make way for the people of Israel. And as you read about the battles in the first 12 chapters, you see sometimes people simply flee and they run off. You see sometimes that they wind up killing themselves. But then you also read passages like chapter 6, verse 21. Under the direction of God, the people of Israel devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Now, what do we say about that? Well, frankly, we could take up several weeks talking about that. <laughs> we could take up several weeks talking about that, taking questions. Uh, we don't have several weeks. We have a few minutes, so let me say just a few things here. First of all, we have to understand that these battles were not about the land per se. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, wait a minute. You just said it was all about the land. It was about God keeping his promises to give the land to Israel. Yes, that's true. But understand that the battles were not about the land per se in the sense that the destruction of the people was not about simply killing them to get their land. That's not what the story is about. At its heart, what we read in the book of Joshua in the destruction of the Canaanites is holy war in the best sense of the word. It is a spiritual conflict directed by God himself. This is why when the spies go into the city of Jericho, there is a pagan prostitute Rahab who says, basically, I've been waiting for you guys. I've heard about the Lord your God, and I am more than prepared to leave all of this false worship away. I'm prepared to leave all this behind and go and worship the one true living God because it's obvious that He is the Lord alone. And so her and her family are not destroyed as the people are being faithful to take out all of the city of Jericho. Was Joshua disobedient to God's command? Absolutely not. Because the point is not ethnic cleansing. The point is the destruction of sinful pagan idolatry. What we have in these chapters is ultimately a God-directed war against sin. Sin is ultimately the enemy God is defeating through Israel in these battles. This is why right after the amazing victory at Jericho in chapter 6, initially the first time they try and take Ai, Israel fails. And you can imagine Joshua saying, No, God, what is going on? You said you were going to be with me like Moses. You said everywhere I went that no one would be able to stand against me. And we just failed. We just got our rear ends kicked bad at AI. What in the world happened? What is the answer that God gives? You better go talk to Achan. The sin of one man in the camp of Israel caused them to lose the victory at AI. What does that say? God takes sin seriously outside and inside his church. And so here we see the extermination of that man Achan. 
the killing of him for his faithlessness and Israel having success and taking Ai a second time. Furthermore, remember what the Lord said to Joshua. He said, whose side are you on? Are, 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 you, are you for us? Or, or, or are you one of those other guys? And what does the Lord say back? Neither. Neither. You understand? God isn't for Israel as much as Israel was called to be for God. Did you get that? God isn't for Israel as much as Israel was called to be for God. And this is why we see many, many years after Joshua, the people continue to sin and to sin and to sin and they go after other gods. The Bible calls it spiritual adultery. They are whoring after those other gods. They are unfaithful to the Lord and the Lord begins to, to warn them. He says, when we entered this covenant, you made certain agreements and you understood that if you did not remain faithful to me, my judgment would come upon you because of your sin. You are living in sin. You had best turn and repent that this covenant cursing, this judgment will not fall upon you. And year after year after year after year after year after year after year, prophet after prophet that is killed and hacked to pieces, God still graciously warns the people until he says, fine, my judgment has come upon you. And suddenly the holy war that was enacted upon those pagan Canaanites, God brings upon his own people. He removes the berries of protection and he allows the surrounding nations to come, to sack, to destroy the cities and carry off his people into exile. Why? Why? Because God takes sin seriously. And God is going to be faithful to his word, whether it is going faithful to his word to judge sin or faithful to his word to protect his people. God warned back in the very beginning of the Garden of Eden, something that Paul would later write in Romans, the wages of sin is death. And what we see here is nothing less than the, than the God of the universe, the holy God, bringing his sovereign just judgment upon sin from that last day, condemning people to hell, into the present, mediating it through his people, Israel. God is faithful to his word. He is faithful to his word to judge sin, but he is also faithful to forgive. Again, think of Rahab, the most unlikely person. It wasn't like some righteous king living in the midst of uh, a, an evil society. It was a prostitute, for goodness sake. But she repented. She turned from her sin and said, I want to worship the one true God. And they said, fine, come and find protection and safety among God's people. Come and be one of us. And today, as we stand in the midst of a sinful world with sinfulness buried deep in our hearts, the very core of our being, God says, I will give you safety and refuge from my judgment if you will simply look to my son Christ and trust in him. For I sent him to die on a cross and bear my wrath against your sins. And if you will stop trying to earn your own righteousness standing before me, and you will simply trust in him, I will forgive you. And I will be your God and you will be one of my people. I will never leave you forsake you if we want to have courage if we want to have courage that is born of a deep faith in God that we will remember that God is faithful to his word and to his promises lastly we will not only remember the presence of God or the faithfulness of God we will also remember the word of God we will remember the word of God this past week, I was reading a review of a book that I'd never heard of before. The book was called Explosive Preaching. And I thought, well, that's a pretty good title. I'd like to read, well, what is explosive preaching? So I was reading a review of this book. 
I never heard of it before, and that was because it was published uh, over in England, and I guess apparently it takes a long time for the books to come across on the boat, and so it's, it's not anywhere here. So I'm reading this site in England, they're reviewing of it. And the review was okay, but it was the review of the final chapters that really, that really stuck out at me. Because the author of the book was talking about this preaching curriculum that he had done for Chinese pastors in, in China. And the curriculum was called the 66331 curriculum. And here's what it was. They had basically a year of directed study over the entire Bible. At the end of that year, they had to be able to preach, very much like, like I'm doing, ironically enough, one sermon giving the entire message of the book of the Bible, taking up one hour time. No notes. And they had to be able to pull up any of the 66 books with five seconds notice. So Jerry, the Chinese pastor here, will be told, I want a sermon on the book of First Chronicles. And one, two, three, four, okay, here's what Chronicles is all about. And they would launch another hour-long sermon, 66 memorized. Then there's the 33. 33 sermons they had, again, hour-long, they had to know, memorize cold on the life of Christ, the, his, the entirety of his ministry from preexistence to second coming. Each sermon can only be rooted in one passage, and only 10 of those passages could come from outside the Gospels. 66, 33, 1. They had one sermon that they could take as long as they want it with, which probably means more than an hour, not less than an hour, sorry. And it was from some passage that was either from the book of Revelation or some other text that talked about the end times, and it was looking at the entirety of the message of the Bible from the focus of eternity. 66, 33, 1. And I was, I was reading that, I thought, that's amazing. And it's amazing for this reason. Number one, they would be able to, to do that in a year's time, to totally give themselves over to knowing the Bible that well. Secondly, because if that was the standard curriculum in any seminary in this country, enrollment would drop by at least half, maybe three quarters. I, I'm not kidding with that. I mean, I, I mean, why? Because we don't know the Word. We don't know the Bible as well as we should. And that's an indictment upon us. Frankly, that's not something that should cause us to chuckle. It's cause us to, to weep. And you say, well, how can you say that? How can you say that with such authority? Simply this. Where is the church growing the fastest and the strongest? It's not here. It's China. It's China. It's estimated because so much of the church is underground. But it's estimated a million converts a year. Do you imagine what this country would look like if we had a million converts in one year? It'd be amazing. And certainly we cannot, we, I don't think we can reduce it to just one reason, but I certainly think that the principle holds, it's because they know the word. And here Joshua is told, know my word, Joshua. If you are going to lead and have success, if you want to be bold and courageous in your call, know my word. Look at verse 7. Be strong and very courageous being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. The Lord tells Joshua the key to being a successful leader is knowing well the word of God and doing what it says always. To never waver over to this side or never waver over to that side. But to saying this is what God's word says. This is what I'm going to do. Nothing less, nothing more. The end. And God says, if you do that, you will have success. And it's not some kind of, not success is some kind of uh, healthy, wealthy, happy thing. Where, well, if you just follow the, the, the book of the Bible, and, and then you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna have wealth, and you're never going to be sick, and you're going to be real happy in God. It doesn't work that way. God is saying, if you obey my word, then you will be courageous. Because you will be reminded uh, that I am with you, and that I am faithful to my word. In other words, for we, we thinking about this today, 
It may not be that God calls us to have external success, but he may call us to be like Job. Someone who's so rooted and deep in the faith that he can allow Satan to take every single thing away from us except for our, li- for our lives. We will still say, the Lord gives, the Lord take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How, how do you achieve that? How do you come to know the word so well and to, to obey it in such a way that you will have that kind of sex? He, he's told in verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. If you're going to obey the word fully, you have to know the word fully. The Lord tells Joshua to meditate on the word. I know we sometimes get scared. We say, oh, meditation, what's that about? What's he talking about? Because in our own country, we had this craze uh, decades ago about transcendental meditation. And it's so associated with, with New Age stuff. Let me just tell you, that's not what, what God's talking about here. Different kind of meditation. And that kind of meditation, you, you're basically trying to, to unstop the cork at the bottom of your brain and, and just empty it of everything that's in there. You want to become a complete blank slate. One with the universe is thought to be that way. And so you got your legs curled up like pretzels and you're, you're, you're holding fingers in certain ways and saying oh and all kinds of stuff, trying to, trying to get everything out. And God says, no, 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 that's not what meditation's about. Meditation's about putting stuff in, not taking stuff out. In fact, the biblical word for meditation is mutter. It's, it's the idea that you constantly have the word of God on your lips. And insofar as that it's on your lips, it's in your mind. You're thinking about it. You're rolling around. You're saying, now how does that passage relate to this passage? And how do they come together? And what does this all mean for my life? He says, day and night. In other words, every, just like Christ is the Alpha and the Omega and everything in between, day and night and everything in between. Every moment that you are awake in some way or another, whether intentionally or in the back of your mind, God's word should be rolling around in there. You should be meditating on it, thinking over it, seeing how it applies to your life. That kind of meditation is not only helpful, it's commanded. Now, some of you are going to say, well, you know, this is, about, this is about Joshua. He's a leader. I'm not a leader. I just sit in the pew. Well, if you don't like Joshua, well, let's turn over Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the, seat of, uh, stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 1 is not about leadership. Psalm 1 is about every godly believer. And what does it say? His delight is in the law of the Lord. Why is his delight in the law of the Lord? Because he meditates on it day and night. The word is so integrated to his life by his meditation that he knows it, He obeys it, and he delights in it. This is why Pastor Dale Davis is right when he says, life in the kingdom of God must be lived out of the word of God. Joshua 1 and Psalm 1 alike tell us that a life pleasing to God does not arise from mystical experience or warm feelings or from new gimmickry advocated in a current release from one of our evangelical publishers. No, it comes from the word, of God, the word God has already spoken and from obedience to that word. One of the most amazing things I found in that post of that review was someone's comment that basically said, yeah, I mean, that would be good to know the Bible that well, but if they were going to be real pastors, they'd have to know how to coordinate small groups They'd have to know how to counsel. They'd have to know how to do this and do that and this and that. It may actually take three years. And I thought, are you stupid? I mean, I, th- I thought that. I didn't say, I don't know the guy. But I thought, are you stupid? What are you talking about? Touchy-feely, blah, blah, blah. That stuff is nice. We do small groups. I do counseling. But let me tell you, to the degree that you know God's word well, so well that you are able to keep all of it with delight because you're meditating day and night, you don't need anything else, folks. 
You'll need to worry about the hottest craze here and this thing over there. The Bible will so shape your understanding of the Christian life and particularly here of leadership that you will know what the right thing to do is. So much more for our lives as Christians today. In the final chapters of the book, having led Israel to possession of Can- to the possession of Canaan, Joshua calls the people to remain faithful to God and His Word. He stands just like Moses on his deathbed and he gives a final sermon to the people. And here's what he says. You are surrounded by idolatry. There is idolatry and paganism all around you and you are going to be tempted to go to those other gods. And you have to decide this day, who are you going to serve? You're going to serve somebody. Who's it going to be? Those gods out there are the one true and living God who redeemed you from Egypt and who gave you this land. He says, you have to decide. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But who are you going to serve? And he says, what does that service look like? Obedience to the law. Obedience to the word that God has given through his servant Moses. And so likewise today for us, if we are going to serve God, if we claim to love the Lord, to want to live for Him, then we will not neglect His Word. And if we take the time to do as God says, to fill up our lives with His Word, meditating on it day and night, laying other things aside that mean nothing in light of eternity, then guess what? We will have courage when it's needed. We will have a bold faith in God that will cause us to be able to go steadily, not wavering from the right or the left or hesitating in the worst and deepest moments of crisis in our life. Joshua is a mighty and pivotal man in the history of God's plan to redeem a people for himself. Yet in the fullness of time, there was another Joshua who came to do an even mightier work. We worship the Lord Jesus Christ, but we forget that Jesus is simply the Greek version of his Hebrew name, Joshua. And just as Joshua, the Joshua we've seen this morning, lived and served with courage, born out of faith in God, so the greater Joshua to come, Jesus Christ, lived with even greater courage. Courage even to the point of trusting his heavenly Father that he went to a cross and died for sinners. And just as Joshua led the defeat of Israel's enemies, so Jesus fought alone and single-handedly defeated our ultimate enemies, sin, death, and the devil himself, all by offering up his life on the cross being raised back to life as the glorious Lord of all things, Jesus now calls us as his people to follow him into spiritual battle. A battle not against flesh and blood, but against sin, spreading the gospel to all nations. With faith in God, we are called to courageously spread God's kingdom, not by the power of the sword, by the power of the message of Christ and message of salvation from sin. And if we are to do that, if we are to be successful in our calling like, like, like Joshua was, if we are to be courageous and bold in our faith, living out our calling, then we need to remember the presence of God, the faithfulness of God, and the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we long to be like Joshua, to have the kind of faith and trust and confidence in you that led him to do amazing and mighty things even when the odds, humanly speaking, were stacked against him. Father, we pray that you would help build that kind of confident faith up in our lives as we seek to know you more and be reminded of your grace in our lives through Christ. Father, we pray all these things in his name. Amen. In response to the word this morning, I invite you to stand and sing with me, O Church, Arise.